Drew Balbrin. If you want to brass some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance in the program. It's one of his classic fortnightly appearances that he always makes. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest and on this edition of the program. As he does every two weeks, what Eric Longenhagen does here is to analyze all prospects. Of particular note in this case, Jordan Hicks. We discussed Jordan Hicks, the young Cardinals right-hander. He's currently sitting at roughly 100 miles per hour with his fastball and is either really dominating or not dominating at all, depending on which metrics one consults. I ask Longenhagen things like, is it a surprise that this is how Jordan Hicks is performing? Are his tools a surprise? Has Longenhagen's projection for Hicks improved or has it remained the same? All of those sorts of things. Uh, we also consider Josh James, right-hander Josh James, a formerly obscure prospect in the Astro system who's now touching 98 uh, and is dominating, and is certainly dominating, uh, almost uh, more than any other minor league pitcher. Long and Hagen share some information about James that makes that breakout less surprising. Uh, also, Long and Hagen answers some shockingly naive questions about extended spring training. Like, for example, not just which players are presently there, which players one could typically find there, uh, but what sort of coaches, and actually just adults in general, are present at teams' spring complexes in um, mid-April, complexes which Longenhagen is frequently visiting at this time of year? We'll address all those matters in what's to follow. For the moment, however, it is both my pleasure and also my obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist. A reasonable sum readers of Fangraphs.com can acquire Fangraphs membership and support the great work that appears in those electronic pages and... For a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, just slightly less reasonable, readers can also acquire, if they so choose, an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, uh, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership, an ad-free membership, available at Fangraphs.com by going there to that URL and then clicking around a little bit. Okay. Uh, that advertisement is now complete, and as such, we will move on to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature? Lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. job-specific stuff that you forget, like, people, you know, if people have a, a typical office job to get to at 8 or 9 or whatever, and then they have their morning routine, but it doesn't really exist when, that's not really a baseball thing. No. You know, you understand. Uh, what what uh, people should know, what a professional you are, Eric Loganagan. <laughs> you, uh, you've consented to appear in the program in between the hours of waking up and then also, I think, attending, what, extended spring training or something like this? Yeah, extended spring training started in earnest, really, last last week, about a week ago. And at least here in Arizona, the games start at 10, 10.30 a.m. So it, it's, just a, it's just a shift from spring training. Which is what? Is I mean, what, one o'clock games, I guess, right? But, but yeah. there's a lot going on in the backfields as well at that point, right? Yeah, typically the, the minor league spring training games on the backfields are also happening at one. But there, there's a lot of variation sometimes they're inter-squad games at nine or ten in the morning sometimes they're night games it's just just sort of all over the place it's really wonderful but it does wreak havoc on people who thrive on routine are you one of those people it's been a long time since i've had one so i'm not i don't know anymore yeah 
Hey, when you're in those when you're in those backfields, are people like, oh, it's Eric Longenagin. Look at this guy. <laughs> do you do a lot of glad handing when you're out there? Yeah, every every team employs Arthur Fonzarelli as a scout. <laughs> It's like, hey. Do you have a clever nickname for everyone? No. <laughs> you call anyone Jimmy Potts and Pans? No, but I do feel bad if any of them are alone on Christmas with a with a small depressing tree. <laughs> That's the only Happy Days episode I know about. Is the one where Fonzie is sad because uh, he's alone on Christmas, and I forget one of the dads goes over to his house and is like, Fonzie, you should come over to our house for Christmas. You know, you don't even have a, you know, we have a tree, and Fonzie points at his little. You know, Charlie Brown tree, and he's like, I got a treat. And it's very sad. That stayed with you, huh? Yeah. You talk about that with your – is that something you bring, you've brought up with your therapist before? Because the fact that the, that memory no. has stayed with you, that might, that might break something wide open, Eric. It might, yeah. 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 That might be a discovery. A 30-year-old a... man hanging around teenage youths <laughs> who is otherwise alone. Hmm. Does that? I don't know. That doesn't remind me of anyone at all. <laughs> anyway, I saw a seventeen-year-old play really well yesterday. <laughs> I saw an eighteen-year-old righty throwing ninety-six yesterday. It was pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, I see your tweets. Hey, can you give me a, a strategy and maybe people? I would say people who like me, but I don't want to offend everyone. So I would say people who share this in common with me, uh, which is that I'm, you know, I think I'm relatively fluent in twenty-five man rosters. You know, maybe not like you know, the relievers at the very end of the bullpen or, you know, at the end of the depth chart and, you know, prospects, some of the, the better prospects in most of the organizations. But obviously, with you know, if you're at extended spring training, you are reporting on players whose names might be a bit more obscure sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have like a, is there any strategy you have or that you could present for kind of like retaining these names? I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm not looking for like a mnemonic device to memorize right. them, I guess. But, uh, like, who who did you see yesterday who was throwing 96? I saw Gregory Santos with the Giants, who is uh, one of the, the players they got back from Boston for Eduardo Nunez last year. Okay. Yeah, I guess if he's involved in the deal, that makes sense. I know that he's somehow... Yeah. He has some sort of value equivalent to Eduardo Nunez. For me, it's it's easy because I'm physically seeing the players. Hopefully, and some of this is, like... I don't know how much of this you've talked about on here if Kylie's been on and talked about it, but like, no, don't worry about Kylie. Okay. Hopefully as we move forward here, like you'll just be able to look on the, if you're a person interested in prospects, you'll just be able to look at our site constantly and just see if we see someone of relevance who we weren't aware of before that you will just be able to go into, you know, a team's list of prospects and know who that guy is. Are you suggesting there are developments ahead? Yes. In terms of prospect coverage? And so, yeah, I mean, like, Gregory Santos, it's it's specifically someone like this. Like, it's rare to see an 18-year-old sitting 94, 96 for a couple innings and show you a couple plus-plus sliders. But you also don't want to, like, in the grand scheme of baseball prospectum, he is not, you know, he's not Ronald Acuna. He's not Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's not these guys who have potentially imminent big league relevance who are also super young and supremely talented. Like, he's... He's someone who'd go at the back of a first round of a draft, someone who we'd probably have a 40 or 45 on, on a prospect list. And so, because my baseline is different than, you know, the casual baseball fan, and I don't think this is wrong to say, but like, probably 90% of the people who read our site, Gregory Santos is like, 
very significant for me, but it, as far as the scope of most people's enjoyment of baseball, he is not. Right, so, and he doesn't need to be. He doesn't no. need to be. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as far as wh- how you remember, I don't know. I guess if, if it's relevant to you and you read my stuff, then great. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, if you are or become interested in this sort of specific corner of the baseball world, then you'll have access to all this information uh, in one place on our site very soon. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not saying it was a great question for, uh, for me. I'd like to be clear on that. The only, uh, but um, uh, it occurred to me, and I said maybe I'll say this out loud. Yeah, and it could have been a could have been a real dud. Yeah, but there you are. I see you uh, you used social media platform Twitter.com right. uh, to mention this yesterday. But I guess I, I let's see, like how many 18 year olds are throwing 93, 96 right now? Again, a question you could literally answer <laughs> on the site very soon. <laughs> when you have the ability to sort every minor leaguer that we've written up by mm-hmm. age and fastball grade. Mm-hmm. So, like, there is an objective answer to this question, and it's sitting somewhere in all these spreadsheets that we've been working on for months. Mm-hmm. The answer is probably, like, 50. Okay. Somewhere between 50 and, and 70, probably, in, in that range. Yeah. I just, yeah, you, you, your, your estimate would be informed. That's why I asked you. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're just looking at it at a given draft class, like this year's draft class has you know, guys who, who sit 92, 95, touch a 6, touch a 7, like, that are 18, there are probably 8 to 10 of them, and half of them have a realistic chance of starting because of command and their deliveries and their, and you know, other elements of a prospect's profile. And then there's pro- there's, you know, always one or two... Latin American kids in in a given year who are developed enough to do that, plus the kids who have grown into that sort of velocity over the last two years. So yeah, I'd say it's probably you know baseball wide, they're they're probably between fifty and seventy kids who throw that hard at that age. It's pretty rare. Do you know who has thrown who has recorded the highest average fastball velocity in the majors this year? Is it Sundergaard? It's not. Is it Jordan Hicks? It is Jordan Hicks. Okay. Tell me about Jordan Hicks, and I'm gonna, for mere context, this is why I'm going to to bring this up. But Jordan Hicks, I think, appeared 11th in the in the Fangraphs list, which is not to say that you missed you didn't miss on him. And it's not like he's actually performing particularly well. No, I take that back. He's allowed zero runs, right? Okay. But he's also walked 17 percent of the batters he's faced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those questions of. Value, right? Like if you're making a prospect list and you think that a guy's a reliever, which based on we had some information about what the Cardinals had planned to do with Hicks, Helsley, Ryan Helsley, another hard-throwing righty in the system, and Sandy Alcantara, who debuted last year and was sent as part of the uh, Marcelo Zuna trade to Miami. Like These are all three really hard-throwing righties who it seemed like the Cardinals were ready to throw in the bullpen right, like right now. And so, like, a 45 future value on Hicks as a bullpen arm is, like, I think we've done that with maybe four or five guys who we have projected as relievers. Slap a 45 or better on them. So it's a strong grade for a reliever. And then also, yeah, I mean, Hicks is is interesting because of the velocity. And I do think he is a quality breaking ball. But the command's not there right now. He's still just 21. He's the age of a college junior uh, and already in the big leagues, which is good. And so, yeah, you know, he's interesting. But the hard-throwing stuff is, like... Tiago Vieira and uh, Mauricio Cabrera. Do, do those ne- names mean anything to you? Yeah, I've heard those. Yeah. Does Steve Dalkowski mean anything to the uh, septuagenarians among our listeners? <laughs> so, yeah, like 
fastball velocity on its own anymore, especially. You know, I'd rather have it than not, but there's got to be a lot else going on because everyone yeah. throw hard, throws hard now. So it's nice that he what, throws this hard. Who was Jordan Hicks? Because so I was surprised to find, and I think that uh, I was right to be surprised. I was uh, surprised to find that Jordan Hicks had been a college pitcher. Typically, um, it seems to me that when you find pitchers of this kind of arm strength, it's those tools would have presented themselves. You know, when they were when the, no. those same players were. Hicks was a third rounder out of uh, Texas high school in 2015. Oh, he didn't go to Rice. Mm-mm. I think you're thinking of Duplantier. I don't know. Are you thinking of John Duplantier? Yeah, definitely. You got me. You're right. Yeah, I guess. Why did I think you went to college? I must have gotten some bad information. Who did this to you? I saw I saw Hicks last week. I mean, not Hicks. Duplantier last week, and I know how hard he threw yesterday, if you want to talk about him, too. Yeah. Who... <laughs> Hicks, he's from, is he from Texas? He's from Texas. He's yeah. from Houston, Texas, in the shadows of Rice University. Okay. Thank Born and raised in the shadows of Rice University, it's Jordan Hicks who did not attend Rice, but instead was selected out of Cypress Creek High School in Houston. Well, anyway, that was useless information. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Jordan Hicks, but what? It was, it was no secondaries? Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, they're raw. When I saw him last fall, the breaking ball would flash, but was inconsistent. So, you know, there's a chance that he... He could have started and had three average pitches. I, I don't know what his pitch mix has been like out of the bullpen uh, this year. If he's just been fastball, breaking ball, then that, you know, that's a clear sign to me that this is a guy that is penned for good, probably, since, you know, the changeup development is paramount for a one and a half pitch guy like this. Like, you know, developing the repertoire depth to have starting viability is pretty important. Now that he's in the bullpen and working with two pitches, that changeup's not developing. So it's like this is a, a bullpen arm. So, you know, the slider probably comes along since he's going to be using it pretty heavily. But yeah, last year when I saw him in Fall League, I had fringe to below average grades on both secondaries. But yeah, he throws plus plus heat. So if we were talking about him in the draft mm-hmm. as a 21-year-old college righty who threw this hard. Like if he was a student at Rice, for example. Right. Right. Like, so Zach Birdie... Mm-hmm. was a, a righty at Louisville, who's now in the White Sox system, who's actually out uh, as he rehabs from Tommy John. But um, when Birdie was in college at Louisville as a reliever, he was 98 to 102 with a plus slider and a plus changeup, and he went at the back of the first round. So for Hicks, it's that sort of velocity. Neither of the secondaries is as good, so you can sort of gauge where that, you know, how mm. the industry values that guy in a in this specific sense. So it's sort of, it's fascinating and maybe, I don't know, somewhat irksome in a way that I can't, I can't necessarily explain why, but it is kind of like funny to me that this guy is throwing in a way that is super hard, quantifiably hard. Hold on. I'm writing that down as a, that phrase. Uh, So like everyone's interested in this guy now because he throws this hard at the big league level, but realistically he's like a second round talent and the you know baseball loving internet public at large does not care about second rounders in the upcoming draft like they just do not but this guy sort of has value on part with one maybe a little bit more because he's in the big leagues uh so that's you know i think context is important for people i'm glad this guy's throwing really hard and it seems like he's, he's having success at the big league level but when you step back and examine his stuff in the grand scheme of things baseball wise you know it's just okay well, he's superlative in one one very conspicuous way. 
Right. I mean, he's recorded the highest average fastball velocity. Mm. He's thrown, I think, like, he's thrown however many of the uh, the fastest pitches in the league so far. So, you know, in any case where there's a superlative at work, I think that's naturally going to draw one's attention. Mm-hmm. You know, like me, I'm a guy, I love extremes, Eric. You know, you know me, I have a, a, a exhibit extreme behavior, right? Yep, you're very extreme. People say that, yeah. Yeah. Well, like, for example, what's my favorite drink? Mountain Dew. Boom. Right? <laughs> Right? Is that still a thing? Mountain Dew? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Hey. Oh. I remember Mellow Yellow came back for a while. Where are you going today? Today I'm going to go to Camelback Ranch, the spring training home of the Los Angeles Dodgers and Chicago White Sox, whose extended rosters both have home games today against Texas and Cleveland, I think? Cleveland is definitely one of them, whose July 2nd kids from last year are... Aaron Bracho and George Valera, especially, I'd like to see. And so I get to go see like four rosters worth of guys because the fields are close enough that I can like walk from one to another. I can like be at one field and like peer over this creek and hill that splits the White Sox and Dodger sides of the backfields at Camelback Ranch and see who's throwing from, you know, at the other field. And if it's someone of relevance, I can take two minutes and walk over there. Use binoculars for that, Eric? No, no, they're they're pretty close. Pretty it's, close. It's a nice there. setup. Yeah, yeah. Camelback Ranch is is nice. When the White Sox and Dodgers are both at home, you can go and see four rosters worth of guys in a day. And so that's the plan today. I don't know who's gonna throw, but you know, sometimes you you show up at the field and Julio Orias is rehabbing, or uh, you know, Alec Hansen has has still not gotten up to speed. So there's. There's like a 20% chance I run into him today if he's throwing in games. Alec Hansen, formerly of a hard-throwing college pitcher. Yeah. This was the guy who, in his draft year, was like the college pitcher with the best stuff and just did not have a consistent junior year, in part due to performance and in part due to health. And he slipped to like the back of the first round, second round area as a result. But in pro ball, has developed and looks pretty good. So he's he's quite exciting. He was on our overall top 100 list. That's good information to have here. I'm marking <laughs> that down as well. All right, so you go see those guys. You'll watch them. And yeah, good job. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I know, like I'm trying, I try to figure out how to turn out these looks into content too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like... Well, what is it? I mean, are you essentially building a library? I mean... Uh, if not necessarily a little one, a um, a mental library where you can access these? Yeah. So the way that the extended spring training stuff benefits like me specifically is twofold. So mm-hmm. the first thing is for a lot of these teams, this is the first time that the Latin American players are coming to the United States to do anything. The Dominican Summer League has not started. And so even a lot of times when you see players who are in the DSL for a summer – they're here in the U.S. for extended spring training. There needs to be a support system in place to have games here so that guys like Alec Hansen and Julio Orias and Luis Robert can get themselves into game shape away from an affiliate. It's just not a good idea to take someone like Alec Hansen or any injured pitcher and just throw them into an affiliated game in Winston-Salem or at Charlotte or wherever. There has to be a place for them to, like, rebuild strength and prove that they're healthy. Before Who's the personnel, you... for example? So you're talking about Alec Hansen is a member of what system? The White Sox. 
The White Sox. Okay. He is a member of the White Sox system. As you mentioned, he's the sort of person you might see today at Camelback Ranch, which is the spring home, uh, both of the White Sox and Dodgers, and also, I mean, the year-round home for certain other purposes. Mm-hmm. Who Who is the personnel that's there? I mean, you know, if one goes to that facility in spring, you see basically all the major league personnel in, a, in addition to, you know, whoever else the organization is instructed to be there. Mm-hmm. Who's there now? From a player standpoint or from like a coaching and executive standpoint? Yeah, I guess coach, who's who's overseeing this? Sort of, I mean, I assume that right. as minor league seasons start, you know, the minor league coaches disperse to their various, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to the Midwest where all, you know, or, wherever minor league stadia are found. So you have to keep in mind that the short season leagues and the rookie like level leagues like the AZL, GCL, New York Penn League and stuff, that those field personnel, the coaches and pitching coaches and managers, they have not broken camp. They're still here. Mm-hmm. The prospects who are going to populate those rosters are either yet to be drafted or here and extended. So that's who's running the show on the backfields during extended. And also most teams have their player development personnel here. There are scouts and executives who work for the given org coming down here to evaluate and or do other you know player development specific stuff. And a lot of teams just have one or two people who run the complex, like who unlock gates and, you know, turn on sprinklers and like do all that sort of stuff and those people may or may not be involved in like the baseball specific aspects of operations as well like sometimes people really do a whole lot of different things so yeah so there's you know most teams have between four and six coaches down here right now working with these groups of players sometimes more and a lot of guys come up from latin america and also because we're talking about 17, 18, 19 year olds, many of whom are coming from Latin America, having a lot of versatility as far as language goes is important down here too, more so than it would be in like the big leagues. Okay, yeah. Because cultural assimilation is occurring as well. So do you think you find a higher than typical percentage of Spanish speakers among the coaching staff who are yes. residents there? Yeah. Yeah. And what do you do? Wait, so, okay, now this, is a, this is terribly naive. But you have a well. Let's talk about uh, Gregory Santos, right, in the giant system. Mm-hmm. I do believe that he's an 18 year old who who hit 96 yesterday. That's correct. Does that sound roughly how much? Yeah, you know from what I understand. Not many more than 50 or 70 guys like that. <laughs> is that good information? I think yeah. That's a, that's a good estimate. I think. Okay, good because I got bad information before too regarding uh, Jordan Hicks. Who, even though he grew up in the shadows of Rice University, uh, nevertheless uh, failed to attend that institution. Talk to my source. What happens when Gregory Santos is like done with the game? I mean, he's he, he's 18 years old. He is a you know, uh, I assume he has some capacity for you know making his own decisions. But mm-hmm. as you know, um, there are a number of players who are not only away from home more or less for the first time, but they're also in a foreign country. Right. Yeah. So yeah, well, I don't. <laughs> play Fortnite, I guess, is what a lot of the minor leaguers are doing. It's, uh, you know, I don't go home with these kids, but I do see them out sometimes, like, in town, like, in Tempe, and a lot of them just, like, going to see other baseball games. So I've seen players at high school state playoff games and at ASU games, and, you know, if I were 18 and a professional athlete and Arizona State were 10 minutes from 
where I was just throwing 96 miles an hour. Like, I know where I'd be after I was done, but I think uh, some teams are a little more hands-on as far as what the, the guys are doing day-to-day. I don't have a whole lot in common with teenage professional athletes, so I don't really know <laughs> what they're up to, but uh, I do know that I see a lot of them out at other games throughout most yeah. of the spring. It just seems to me that it poses a uh, an interesting logistical concern, right? Obviously, it's to the team's best interest to uh, you know make sure that they conduct themselves virtuously or somewhat virtuously, <laughs> but they're, yeah. not, they're, they're not parents either at the same time. Yeah, I think some of the teams are definitely more hands-on about what the kids are doing day-to-day. Mm-hmm. There are cultural assimilation, cla- like there's a classroom environment as well that I, I have not been privy to, but I know... Like the Dodgers and Cubs especially have people that teach language and other cultural uh, nuances. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how pervasive it is throughout all of the organizations here. I'm not sure this, who – like I don't have a whole lot of feel for who is better at it than others. I know like the Cubs do a thing, and I think other teams do too, where they like actually have graduation ceremonies and they actually give the kids some sort of degree. Like they do make some pomp and circumstance about – continuous learning and growing away from the field too which i think is good that could be adorable did i have to say that that i think it was good would you if i hadn't said that would you have just assumed that i was neutral about it neutral about what good that kids are learning (laughs) i i mean you've condemned lifelong education for as long as i've known you so it would have been consistent with that particular message there's a there's a question a lot of people are asking and that is why you omitted Josh James. He's a right-handed pitcher in the Houston Astros <laughs> system. A lot of people are wondering why you omitted Josh James, who's been, you know, by any any objective measure, he's been one of the best pitchers in the minors thus far. Okay, so... A lot so, of people are wondering why you neglected to include him. I know. All right, <laughs> Even so anywhere little... on the list. I mean, it's... it's a, Is it a black spot on your resume? <laughs> I think it is. Here's, yeah. So here's a little, like, glimpse into how the... the hey, Eric, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. You feel like you got some bad information. <laughs> no, I got good information that I didn't. <laughs> you ignored. <laughs> so I was given sort of vague, like, when it's like the list is, these prospect lists, when they're just about done, when the names are all collected and they're roughly ordered and we're just trying to polish them up and be as correct as possible, like in sort of this, the later stages, like act three of each list, mm-hmm. you know, I source and make sure that I'm not missing anyone. And Josh James is one of the guys who I was told, eh, this guy had a velo spike last year. You might want to add him on there. He's like a junior college signee. This is one of your sources? Yeah, this is one of my sources who told me this. He's like, he's throwing harder now than he was. He might be worth mentioning because there's like a chance he breaks out. Sounds a little cryptic at the same time as being helpful. Sounds helpful and cryptic. And so I'm like looking at josh james at this time and i'm just like okay so it's like this junior college guy who's (laughs) 25 already and he threw i don't know he pitched in the double a bullpen for a little bit last year and was like walking four guys per nine innings and stuff so i just wasn't there yet i didn't go i didn't seek out any any more information yeah and so like you know that i check the minor league box scores every night and so after this guy's first two appearances, I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> so since then, like I have dug, and so this guy is up to 98. His velocity has ticked up each of the last three years. 
and there are like two above average plus secondaries and maybe a third. <laughs> also, you know, it is a hellacious fastball. Mm-hmm. And the delivery way? is kind of a mess. And so this guy's probably a reliever ultimately. But now we're also talking about a hard throwing reliever at double A who is really performing. And so that guy is like of immediate relevance potentially. So like he should be on the list and you could probably make an argument that he should just be a 40 now. So yeah, Josh James. And again, wouldn't it be exciting if as soon as I learn all this information, I could just be like, oh, well, Josh James should be 15th on the Astros list. And then the next day it were on there and there were maybe a Twitter account that sent out a tweet that was like, hey, add it Josh James to the Astros sortable board. And you could just go there and see like the full report and maybe some video and stuff like that. Now, do you think that's going to be a feature that's available at Fangrass.com? Hmm. I do. <laughs> Josh James would have been nice to have him on that list. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> no, to be I get yeah. To be very fair, he was selected in the thirty fourth round in two thousand fourteen. I think he attended what a JC Western Oklahoma something like that. Yeah. I don't necessarily know what uh, Western Oklahoma produces. When I was uh, essentially looking at where good players come from, defining good players like. Anyone who puts up a three win, three win a better season, maybe. I, I stole some, you know, some of the criteria from something Jeff Sullivan had done before me. And the idea was to learn where the players come from. You know, if they're drafted in what rounds, for example, uh, what type of schools, mm-hmm. uh, just a kind of demographic report. And uh, unsurprisingly, for American-born amateur players, there was a pretty strong. I mean, this has been borne out elsewhere. There is a very strong correlation between, you know, draft pick and future war. And there was a strong correlation between, you know, between what you consider like like the powerhouse schools, right? You know, there's a lot of kids from the SEC, for example, especially pitchers. A lot of pitchers, a lot of players who become good major league pitchers have gone to the SEC. And then, I, I don't know, there's probably some, I haven't, I didn't check this out, but there's probably some correlation between um, amateur you know, bonuses for international players. The results for junior college players were much more scattered. Like there were some really good junior college players who, you know, who had stuck around until ninth and 11th rounds or something like that. It seems like it would be a challenge maybe to scout those. I don't know. What is there a different uh, sort of way one goes about that? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think the scouting is necessarily different, but I do think it's harder. The, the level of competition is so much more variable that it becomes, you really have to sift through a lot of noise, like visual noise. If you go to an SEC game, the chances of you seeing more than one guy who throws under 85 is pretty low. Mm -hmm. But if you go to a junior college game and are trying to scout, let's say, a hitting prospect, you might see him face nothing but mid-80s fastballs. And so it just becomes harder to, like, adjust for for that aspect of it. Competition, yeah. Yeah. And also... A lot of the junior colleges are just in weird locations. Like Central Arizona has a bunch of interesting prospects. So, yeah. So, like, it is tougher to do the junior college stuff. And, like, especially in places where it's really spread out, like in Texas and in Oklahoma, where it's probably not efficient for an area scout to go and sit on the same junior college prospect every week or, you know, twice a week when your area is monstrous and it takes a lot of time to like get to and from that spot. And so that's why I think you see some of these Oklahoma JUCOs 
and there are several of them, give us Angleton Simmons and stuff like that, and a bunch of these other interesting, like, big league starters. And, yeah, like, junior college ball is tough. And it's also really, it's splintered in a way that the Division One baseball is not. Like, Oregon State went and played Missouri State last weekend, and teams go down to Florida to play, you know, from UConn and Wichita State goes to Florida to play in uh, Orlando and stuff. So, like, there's a lot of cross-pollination of, like, ideas and and scouting looks at these guys. But, like, the junior colleges out near me, the College of Southern Nevada and the ones locally here in Phoenix, like, they just sort of play each other a lot for a couple months. And, like, that's sort of it. And so there's just not, like, a whole lot of... Like, there's things don't spread out. Like, there are pockets of talent there are high concentrations of talent at some of the programs like chipola in florida and at southern nevada where like bryce harper went and stuff uh, and like they get all the talent mm-hmm. san jacinto in texas is another one but they don't really play each other very often and so you do end up with this issue of looking at these guys where they're just facing players that they're not pro prospects and it, it does make it them more difficult to scout where did tyler Beatty go vanderbilt <laughs> Oh yeah, he did. You're right. <laughs> there, there was a no, but there was a prospect. There was a right-hander who was known for his command. Who, like Beatty, I believe, was selected and then did not sign, and then was signed later. Are you thinking of Bickford? I think I'm thinking of. Is it Phil Bickford? Yeah, Phil Bickford. Where's Phil Bickford right now? Uh, is he, did he even break camp? I'm looking now. Yeah, let's do let's do some real time. So, gathering. all right, I've got it. No, he has not pitched for the Brewers yet. So, yeah, so the Bigford stuff is, some of it is player-specific. Bigford popped up late when in high school. Mm-hmm. Not everyone... Hey, 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 he's in the Giants system. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not in the Giants system. He was drafted by the Giants. Right. And now he's in the Brewers system. So... You're not going to see him at Camelback Ranch. Right. right. <laughs> so... Bigford popped up late in high school and not everyone got in to see him, but the teams that did get in to see him really liked him and the Blue Jays were among them. And then also there were issues with like teams trying to get in to have an in-home visit with him and get a feel for the kid and the family. And the ones that did came away kind of like, hey, this kid's weird. Mm -hmm. And then he failed his pre-draft test for pot, which he has since tested positive for again at least one time. Wait a second. Did it test you to, to make sure that you like it? <laughs> Is that the test? I don't yeah, know. We're just maybe that's, sure maybe that... that's the test you have to pass to get on the 40 man. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you get on the 40 man, they stop yeah. testing for it. Yeah, we just, want to, uh, we just want to ensure that you have a positive reaction to this drug that solves all your problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you like cookies? No. Well, do I have good news for you? <laughs> So anyway, the Blue Jays took this kid in the first round out of high school and he didn't sign. And mm-hmm. there were like makeup and potential medical issues that played a role. Then he goes to Cal State Fullerton and he shoved as like a freshman at Fullerton and on the Cape the next summer. So he transferred to the College of Southern Nevada so he could be draft eligible as his stock was soaring. And now can I interject briefly? If you'd like to know why, I think it's quite reasonable that I confused Phil Bickford with Tyler Beatty. Because Tyler Beatty, not only was he twice was he selected once in the first round, didn't sign, and then was selected once again in the first round. But he, in both cases, Bickford and Beatty, the first team by which they were selected was the Toronto Blue Jays. Right. So, 
they do have some similarities. Yes, agreed. And then, so yada, yada, yada. Bickford pitches at College of Southern Nevada. The Giants take him in the first round. He pitches pretty well for them initially, and then they traded him to Milwaukee in the, I forget what the trade was, last year or in 2016. Like, Bickford was think- in the 2016 Futures game, and they traded him. Anyway, his stuff is down. He's been suspended. He's been hurt. I saw him a bunch last summer rehabbing in the AZL, and sometimes he was like 88 to 90. Sometimes he was 90, 93. Uh, he's sort of a strange bird, which is fine because, I don't know, everyone who works for the site we we do. So, But yeah, like he hasn't broken camp and the situation is not good. But that was, that was a guy who ended up at a junior college for other reasons, not someone who was just there. But that happens a lot too. And, you know, guys shuttle in and out of in and out of those places. There's at Central Arizona right now, there's a catcher who transferred there from Oregon because he wasn't getting playing time. So, like, sometimes guys like that slip, slip through the cracks, too, because he was the Northwest Area Scouts responsibility last year, but didn't play. So there's nothing on him. Now he's at a junior college in Arizona. So unless your organization is sharing information based, you know, from when the kid was in high school and presumably interesting because he was a division one signee like the four corners area scout who's now responsible for him might not know who he is and so literally there's a prospect at oklahoma state right now named matt croon whose dad mark you might remember who was like one of the few guys who used to be able to throw 100 but matt went to oregon to play second base didn't play transferred to central arizona played there last year was drafted by the phillies I think it was the Phillies, didn't sign, and then transferred to Oklahoma State. So he has been three different area scouts' responsibility over the last three years. And so instead of someone having a three-year, maybe more, relationship with this player, that doesn't exist. So, like, it's hard to scout that guy. It's hard to know what that guy is because you haven't seen what he's been since his senior year of high school, like some area scouts have if, you know, you go to college locally. Junior college ball is hard to scout. I think that's what we're trying to say. Hey, I went to. Uh, I no, I didn't go to. I I uh, was a professor, not a professor. I was a I was a person who taught at Mount Hood Community College, and uh, I think that there were some aspiring ball players there. Although uh, looking over the database at Baseball Reference, it seems as though um, maybe they had not been drafted with a great deal of frequency from Mount Hood. But uh, yeah, hey, great conversation about that. Let me ask you another question. Just did the raised list. Oh man, their system is so good. This I don't know if you've done a team that had maybe the Yankees. I don't know. I don't know how many how many names that was deep, but it was thirty thirty something. Yeah, the Yankees were this twenty is... was twenty seven, and it probably okay. would have been close to to the Rays' sheer number had they not moved. Like you know, they made the Stanton deal and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, but the, this Rays system was quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is it is quite impressive. It was impressive to to look over yesterday. So I think that there are, are maybe – I don't know if they're conflicting narratives. They should probably be complementary narratives about how the Tampa Bay Rays became a legitimately competitive club. What, you know, what, five five years – I don't know the time. I don't know what time Well, the was. World Series appearance was 10 years ago. Is it already 10 years ago? Yeah. So then is my I point. guess they were good for a while after that though, right? Because David Price was still pitching out of their bullpen at that time. He had just come up. That was more like Casimir Shields – I mean, Longoria was part of the team, too, I assume. Like a young oh, DJ Upton. Jeez, wow, yeah. So, now, that team was constructed in part, I think, on uh, the basis of Andrew Friedman et al.'s baseball acumen, right? And their capacity for, this is a commonly used phrase, for exploiting inefficiencies. Uh, they also, of course, had the benefit for a number of years of, um, you know, top draft picks because they were miserable. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, although not all of those hit, you know, it's certainly Josh Hamilton Young. didn't work out for them. No. Right. Right. So they had some, uh, they had the duds and of course, Tim Beckham, uh, who was uh, yeah. first overall selection at some point. He, he had, he actually has, it seems cobbled together uh, some kind of, some kind of a career. At least he was quite good last year. Right. But like Buster Posey would have been on that 08 world series team. If what? If they had drafted him instead of Tim Beckham. Oh, instead of Tim Beckham. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. It's, it's time is curious, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so how have they, how have they gone about putting this system together though? Because I don't, because they've been kind of like moderately competitive over the past yeah. however many years. The last couple of years, they, I know, have tried to compete. And it wasn't until their injuries this spring when they were, I think, sort of realized that that, like losing De Leon, losing Honeywell, combined with what the Yankees and Red Sox are, are doing, I think that, you know, led them to, to push the reset button pretty hard but like i picked them in the sort of the sort of last year 2017 like i picked them to make the wild card and they were competitive until the very end of the year uh when they were terrible so this system it's interesting you know in the draft they've they've targeted a lot of high upside types you know quote unquote the toolsy high school players that uh, are pretty volatile they've also spent pretty heavily in latin america or acquired latin american talent or international talent while it's still marinating in like the low levels of the minors, they the Rays really scout the lowest levels hard. Wait, uh, is there a club? If I'm not mistaken, there's a club that does not scout anyone below a certain level. I was told last year that the Mets don't scout beneath full season ball, which is laughably bad. Okay, but there's been an an uptick in the number of scouts who are here for extended and stuff like that because it is really a place where you can turn over some rocks and and discover some someone interesting but like if you look at some of the trades that tampa has made like willie adamas who's their top prospect right now like he was acquired when he was in the really low levels from detroit and uh lucius fox they acquired from the giants when he was very young and they've fleeced jerry depoto for an infielder named carlos vargas who was in the DSL, you know, a year and a half ago, who's pretty interesting. So it's like they're they're targeting these high upside high scores in the draft, like Garrett Whitley and Josh Lowe. They, they're finding all these interesting young Latin American players, either uh, like Wander Franco, they're getting them on their own, or they're getting in on players like this early from other teams, like Lucius Fox. And uh, even like Tobias Myers, who they got from the, the Orioles for Tim Beckham last summer, was pitching well in rookie ball when they acquired him. So... Like, they're targeting really young minor leaguers in these trades, and combined with this style of talent acquisition is the type of players that they're acquiring, which is all of these interesting, versatile infielders who can hit, and none of them have a whole lot of power, and none of them can really play shortstop, but, like, historically now, the Rays have put players at short who... In a vacuum, I would not classify as viable defensive shortstops. It's like Daniel Robertson and Brad Miller. Matt and Duffy. Ha- Matt Duffy, they've played there. Yeah, Duffy has played there. And, like, they've been doing that for a while. And so now the minor league system looks like, you know, they've got Wendell and Hecheveria and Duffy and Miller and Robertson on the big league club. And then they have Christian Arroyo and Nick Solak. 
and Vidal Bruhan and Brandon Lowe in the minors and a bunch of other guys like that too. Like even Jermaine Palacios, who they got from the Twins for Jake Odorizzi is, you know, this type of player. Jake Cronenworth, who played two ways at Michigan, plays a lot of shortstop for them in the minors, is more of a second base type who can hit. Like they just have all these guys. And if you watch their big league club, which I have a little bit, like they are in that phase competitively now where they get to experiment and so they really do move their infielders around in a unique way and are starting to use their pitching in a unique way and it seems like they're setting themselves up to play positionless baseball at least on the infield and maybe even yeah, in the well, outfield yeah, too it's, it's, because Solak is playing like some outfield now it is a yes it's a strange arrangement and th- yeah and they have uh, they have other guys sort of in these defensively f- sort of fringy ranges like i think uh, joe mccarthy hasn't he typically been a, f- a first baseman who's also doing some corner outfield at this point yeah first base corner outfield he was an outfielder at virginia and has had some back issues which sort of limit his mobility so mm-hmm. yeah he's like a first base corner outfield guy without you know monster power but he does a lot of other stuff one player that I came across who I think actually was released in the past week was a player named Cade Gada. Are you familiar with Cade Gada? No, I'm looking now. Yeah, you could type it in. Yeah, look at his face. 27. Cade Gada. You can also look at his swing, I think. It's a very curious swing. Well, Chris Mitchell wrote wrote about him on the Cato stuff mm-hmm. in 2017. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, he's no longer a member of the Rays system. But he was a player at whom I was looking who had recorded – very strong defensive numbers in outfield corners, but he had a very strange profile. And I don't know if you can see video of his swing, but it is not one that anyone would teach. This is not a traditionally effective swing, uh, and it is also not the sort uh, that one typically associates with the airball revolution. <laughs> it, lo- it looks like he's performing some sort of like uh, old-timey calisthenic. And, oh, uh, did you have you watched that marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime? I, I have not. Uh, I have not. But although well, there's been, a scene uh, in there where like there's a bunch of women in uh, doing old timey calisthenics, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm watching this guy now. I didn't know a whole lot about. I didn't. I didn't know anything about who this guy was until you just That's mentioned him. But yeah, this is weird. <laughs> uh, but he's actually he actually put up good news. I, I was just interested in Kate Goddard momentarily, I guess. But he was also another one who uh, seemed like he was playing multiple positions. He was a strange player otherwise. And and even the 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 guys at whom I was looking for, uh, Sestouli's guy for your list, were all on the lines. There's a guy, uh, Peter Maris, who's played shortstop, but maybe isn't really a shortstop. Probably isn't really a shortstop. Miles Mastroboni. Mastroboni, yeah. Mastroboni. Uh, Michael Russell. Uh, Michael who Russell I think was your dude last year. Yeah, so at some length last year. Who was a combination shortstop and first baseman. Those are the only two positions at which he was being deployed. And I think he had gone to, what, UNC or something like that, maybe. Yeah, he did. Maybe played shortstop there. Yeah, but no, but it, it, it does seem as though they're sort of, uh, let's see, inculcating? Are they inculcating their players, maybe, into uh, accepting this kind of um, positions being on a sort of continuum, right? I think so, yeah. This, is, this org has guinea-pigged fringe guys in the past, like... Back before weighted balls were a commonplace thing, mm-hmm. Tampa was one of the teams who would, you know, take the guys who were sort of on the fringe of sticking around pro ball or not and say, hey, like, we think that it, this might help. And so, like, let's try it. And as a way of, like, studying the effects of what was going on, as well as, you know, trying to get the most out of 
otherwise fringe minor leaguers. And so it wouldn't surprise me if something similar were going on uh, with them in the minor leagues. You know, watching Cade got a swing, mm-hmm. there are some, you know, like Driveline is, is doing hitting stuff now, uh, and there are some elements here that are uh, what I would describe as what they teach, mm-hmm. and then there are elements that are not. <laughs> it's like, you can see him finding, oh, and then maybe not all the time. Like, there are people who, when they teach hitting, they want you to really find, like, have the the weight on the ball of your foot on your rear leg as you like explode forward. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Explode. Yeah. Leap, leap into the, uh, into the pitch. But when I like stand in my backyard with a baseball bat and try to feel what that's like to do and like try to do it myself, I always find myself getting low. Like it's a low, I feel like I'm low to the ground with my legs bent and Gata somehow is like finding the ball of his rear leg while his rear leg is entirely straight. Like his knee is locked. Probably requires some sort of uh, above average balance, don't you think? It is, yeah, it is super funky and fun it to is watch. A bit funky, but yeah, I, I would I would say that the Rays are experimenting with all sorts of with all sorts of things, and they should be because the Red Sox and the Yankees are in their they're in their division. Yeah, I've seen I've heard of those teams. Yeah, you get good information on that. Hey, hey, Eric, what's up? You fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Cool, great moment. Uh, stick around, of course, for a brief chat afterwards. However, what I would like to say uh, now is thank you, Eric Longenagan. It has been Fangraphs' lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenagan. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>